I want to ask you if you would to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ezekiel. We've been in Jeremiah a while. We're going to pause there now and step over into Ezekiel so that we can pick up the same timeline. If you know where Jeremiah is, if you remember that, go there and turn right, and it'll be Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Years ago, when I was in the computer business, we got a contract with a very large company we had heard a lot of good things about and had particularly heard some things about the CEO of this company. And um, so I had, this, I had this idea in my mind of who he was going to be. I heard he was a, a no-nonsense person, and um, some had said he was distant and unapproachable and rather tough. And there were, I don't know, a couple thousand employees, I believe, in this place. And, and so we began meeting with department heads and a couple of VPs and scoping out the system that they wanted us to design and began working there. And um, I ran, ran into this man a number of times and just chatted briefly. And, and over time, he, for whatever reason, it sort of invited me in and allowed me to get to know him. And what I discovered over time was that my initial perception of him was completely wrong. I had based it on the little scraps of information that I had heard from people along the way who had never gotten to know him. And I had this almost um, fear of him in my mind before I got to know him. And when I, when I was invited into his world and I, I got to know who he really was, I saw I had been wrong about him all along, and that wrong picture of him had affected even me seeing him coming down the hallway as a young guy. I would sort of look and flinch a little bit and, you know, you, well, you've got to act a certain way. Here's the big guy. And I found out to my delight that sometimes we can paint pictures of people in our mind um, that are completely wrong, and once we get to know that person, we find out they're a delightful, beautiful, gracious, generous human being. All of us this morning carry a picture of God in our mind. And that affects what we think of him. It affects whether or not we obey him. If you have a picture of an old man in a sky, in the sky, a grumpy old man with a big stick who's just waiting to clobber you over the head when you step out of line, that's exactly the kind of God you're going to get. If you have a picture of a, of a God who created things years ago and then went and took a billion-year nap and he doesn't care about us at all, he's not involved, that's exactly the kind of relationship you're going to have with God. This morning we come to passage of scripture that is genuinely holy ground in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the book of Ezekiel um, is so revered even today by rabbis that they do not allow their children to read the book of Ezekiel until they're 30 years old because it's too much, they believe. And so this book is one that the church almost never talks about. And I've been chomping at the bit to, to get to this book. Um, it is so powerful. It's one of those that I, I truly feel intimidated by. Anytime I come to the book of Ezekiel, I feel like a little drooling child sitting at the feet of a great master. I don't know how to speak. I don't know how to think. I don't know how to act. It's just so much bigger than me. And I'm very thankful for that. I'm thankful uh, that there are so many things about the Bible, that there are so many things about God that we can know, but I'm so thankful there are things I'm convinced you and I will never know in this life, and we're not meant to. They're bigger than us. We can gaze upon them. We can be moved by them, inspired by them, but we're not supposed to tinker with them. You understand? We're not supposed to to take them apart and crawl inside and be able to understand every moving piece. We're not supposed to. There are some areas in life that are holy ground. Um, the book of Ezekiel is one of those books. 
And so I'm excited now to uh, begin looking at this with you this morning. We will come back to Jeremiah, um, but now the events starting in Ezekiel 1 take place at the same time as to uh, where we left off last week in the book of Jeremiah. Well, I have always enjoyed reading polls and surveys and looking at statistics, and um, the Pew Research Company took a poll of people across the United States, and here's what they found. 92% of Americans believe in God. And I thought when I read that, wow, thank goodness, we are a Christian nation. 92% of Americans believe in God. So relax, everybody. Everything is going to be fine. We're in good shape. My question is, if 92% of Americans believe in God, then why is it that the moral condition of our country does not reflect that number at all? Well, let's look at some more of those survey answers. Of those 92% of Americans who believe in God, 71% are absolutely certain God exists. The rest, not sure. 56% said God is very important in their lives. 39% attend worship services every week. The real issue is not that 92% of Americans say they believe in God. The real issue is what exactly do they believe about God? 56% said God is very important in their lives, but I think the question should really be, is obeying God's commands also really important in your life? As I said, we all have a picture of God, and we'd better make sure it's the right picture of God, because it will affect our entire life. The pastor and a very well-known author, A.W. Tozer, once wrote this, what comes into your mind, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, if you're like me, that'll, that may take a couple years to really land with you. I wasn't sure he was right when I heard that as a teenager. I'm like, hmm, might be overstating it a bit. I can tell you now as a middle-aged man, he's absolutely right. Absolutely right. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I, I also put a couple of his books up here. I don't often recommend books, but uh, if you've never read The Pursuit of God, or Knowledge of the Holy, I would recommend those two little books to you. They are classics and still changing lives today. Well, today we meet this young man named Ezekiel, who was a very religious man. He lived in Jerusalem. He was studying to be a priest in the temple of God. But one day he was given a glimpse of God's glory and his life was forever changed from that point on. Why? Why would someone religious who had studied God's law, who knew the temple system, who was training to be a priest, why would someone who already knew that much about God prior to that encounter have been so changed, so dramatically affected by it? It's because he thought he knew who God was, but until he had this encounter, he actually had no idea who God was. The book of Ezekiel, I think more than any other book in the Bible, except Revelation, displays the indescribable power and might and glory of God. This book reveals to us a God, whether we like it or not, a God who cannot be fathomed a God who cannot be comprehended, a God who cannot be explained. And yet, in a remarkable twist, Ezekiel also reveals how deeply this all-powerful God wants to be personally known by all people everywhere. As a matter of fact, I'll go ahead and reveal to you the main theme of the book of Ezekiel, and it's this then they shall know that I am the Lord. 
63 times in this book, 63 times, which is a staggering percentage compared to the size of this book. 63 times in this book, God says, then they shall know that I am the Lord. That is the message of this entire book. Well, if you have your Bibles open there, let's read the first three verses and get the setting and the time frame of this. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month. Everybody got that straight so far? I told you the Old Testament gets really rough for a while here. As I was among the captives by the Kibar River or canal, it's also referred to as, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Verse 2, on the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, as we've talked about, by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Well, just very quickly, we're, we're given two date markers in this passage. He mentions the 30th year, and he mentions the fifth year, specifically of King Jehoiachin's captivity. Now, uh, Jehoiachin was king of Judah, Jerusalem at this time. He had taken over from his father. He had only been on the throne about three months prior to the Babylonians coming down and attacking Jerusalem. Um, Jehoiachin was taken away to Babylon in the second invasion that we've talked about. I'm going to, I think next week, bring the the maps and the dates back just to um, update us once again on all of these time frames. But the king was taken away in the second invasion in 597 BC along with Ezekiel. So both of them were taken in 597, taken up to Babylon as captives. So now Ezekiel is saying in these verses, he's been in Babylon for five years. And the 30th year that he mentions is interesting because whenever we've, as we've looked at these Old Testament books, they would generally use the kings as time markers. They would say, for instance, it was the eighth year of the reign of Josiah. And it's very easy then to go back and figure that out of when that happened in history. They always use the kings as markers. He doesn't do that here. Ezekiel simply says it was the 30th year. And so what he seems to be saying, what, what we believe is that he's most likely saying, it was my 30th year. I was 30 years old when this happened. And that would make a lot of sense based on other things that he says. So he's called Ezekiel the priest. And what we know from scripture is that men would spend most of their lives up to the age of 30 training to be a priest in the temple. Uh, the Bible tells us back in the book of Leviticus that a man had to be at least 30 years old before he could begin serving as a priest in the temple. And years before that, uh, he would be in training for that day. But not until he was 30 years old was he allowed to actually begin serving as a priest. So if we put these numbers together, what we see is something kind of interesting. What we see is that Ezekiel was 25 years old when he was ripped out of his homeland in Jerusalem and taken captive to Babylon, 25 years old. He's now writing this at 30 years old. So imagine how discouraging this was for him, not just to be taken away from his homeland, his family, his temple at 25 years old, but also now to have reached the age of 30 and realize he's never going to be able to serve as a priest. All those years of investment and study and labor and diligence all down the drain. I can't help but think that Ezekiel must have been sitting up there in captivity in Babylon, and their captivity was sort of a, a prison without walls, if you will. They were allowed to live in their own space and so on, but they were um, 
incorporated into the Babylonian culture. They tried to indoctrinate them and, and so on. And so now he's, he's 30 years old, and maybe he's thinking, wow, what a waste. What a waste everything has been up to this point. I've been looking forward to this day. Here I am, seven, 800 miles away from home, and I'll never be able to put into practice what I've really wanted to do for God. But what we see in time is that this wasn't a waste at all. Because God had a different mission for Ezekiel than Ezekiel had pictured for himself. God needed Ezekiel to be in Babylon so that God could minister through him to his people in captivity there in Babylon. God left Jeremiah down south in Jerusalem, in Judah, to minister to those people who were left. But God needed a man in Babylon to to deliver his word to his people there. Again, if we'll pause just long enough and see what's really going on here, we'll see once again the kindness of God. These stiff-necked people of his who were sent into captivity because of their rebellion, did God not have every right to say, serves you right, see you later, suckers? He didn't say that. As God, if I can just put this in silly human terms, God is looking at his people there in Babylon in captivity, and his heart is breaking. He's like a parent who's disciplined his child who can't, who can't stay out of the room for another five minutes without going in and hugging them and just reminding them, I love you so much. People who claim the God of the Bible to be an angry, mean, hateful God, they haven't read the Bible. They've just heard stuff. And so God had a different mission for Ezekiel than Ezekiel had planned for himself. Hey, can I just say a word here real quick to you? Most of the time in our lives, God is going to do the same thing to us. Most of God's calls on your life will not make sense, and they will not come at a convenient time. This is why I don't push people and try to force people to become followers of Christ. I I want them to. I encourage them to. But I also want to let them know you're signing up for something. You are giving your life away. You're dying to your own desires and dreams. Oh, it's not that God steals your dreams and says, I'm going to make their life miserable. No. But be prepared. If you've committed your life to Christ to follow him, there are going to be twists and turns along the way that you sit there going, what is happening? This is not what we planned at all. I could tell you story after story, but I don't have time of how this has happened to Sandy and I over the years. And boy, do I thank God for a wife who has so (coughs) kindly and graciously and humbly said, yes, Phil, we'll obey, we'll do that. And it has not been easy. It has not been easy. So now Ezekiel is up there, 30 years old, without question. He's thinking of this momentous date in his life when he could have begun service in the temple back in Jerusalem. But here he is now, stuck in exile in a foreign land. And it's it's at this exact point in his life when God comes to him. When God gives him a vision, gives him what he needs to prepare him for the next step in his life. Again, it's a beautiful picture of the grace of God. God is not going to download everything you and I need into us today. He's not going to give you what you need for 20 years from now. But 20 years from now, when you reach that crisis in your life, God will give you the grace and the wisdom that you need in that moment. That's how it works. Give us this day, our daily bread. And that's not me at all. I I want a pantry full of bread for the year so that I can relax and go, we got it made, baby. We're in good shape. God says, no, no. I want to keep you on a really short leash. I want to keep you coming back to me every day. So at this crisis time, whatever you want to call it, in Ezekiel's life, 
God comes to him. And now, now the fun begins in this book. Um, <clears throat> I can just tell you guys, Rachel and Jaron, this, this sermon did not end up coming out anything like I told you it would. So um, that's just how it is. You, you're expected to teach on the glory of God. Uh, you just got to be open to, <laughs> to whatever uh, God leads you to. I really don't know what to do with these verses, but they're in Scripture, and so we're going to read them, and we're going to talk about them a little bit. If this is your first time in church, uh, I want to say congratulations. Boy, did you pick a day to come. It's usually not like this. I also debated whether to read all of this. Verses 4 to 28 is where the details of this vision are contained. And I thought, you know what, Phil? Don't be a wimp. Don't summarize it for the church so that you don't have to read the hard parts. Just read it and let God say what he needs to say for crying out loud. So this is a rather long section, but I do want us to read this. I want us, as we begin this book, this, what we're about to read, sets the tone for everything that's going to happen. So take a deep breath, and let's begin. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, radiating out of its midst like the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. Verse 10, as for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man, each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. Their wings stretched upward. Two wings of each one touched one another, and two covered their bodies. And each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and they did not turn when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. And the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of beryl. And all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they moved, they went toward any one of the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. As for their rims, they were so high that they were awesome, and their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. Verse 19, when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, because there the Spirit went. And the wheels were lifted together with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. You got this so far? Verse 21, when those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Verse 22, the likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures 
was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. And under the firmament, their wings spread out straight, one toward another. Each one had two which covered one side, and each one had two which covered the other side of the body. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. A voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. And above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Verse 27. Also, from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around it. And here we go, verse 28. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. Well, have a good afternoon, folks, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) Can I just tell you, many scholars and theologians have lost their minds over these verses we just read. Some have tried to explain them away, and some have tried to just explain them, and both have failed. I'll tell you two theories that these brilliant scholars have come up with. One is that what we've just read is describing UFOs. It's true. You can look it up. These are scholarly people. Another one is they actually believe that Ezekiel had taken some kind of hallucinogenic drug that he ran across in Babylon. This is no joke. And that he was tripping when this vision came to him. He was on mushrooms or something. Listen, folks, listen. When a person doesn't believe in God, and they don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture. They will go through every imaginable kind of contortion to make the Bible say things it doesn't or keep the Bible from saying things it does. Also, they can try and silence their guilty conscience before God. Make no mistake, that's what they're doing. Can I just briefly explain exactly what Ezekiel saw? I don't know. (laughs) I don't have a clue. This would be like taking one of our most advanced fighter jets back to the 1500s and flying low over a crowd of people in a village and then listening to those people try to describe what they just saw. It was like a bird, but its wings didn't move. Inside its eye, I saw what looked like the head of a man. Right? right? They, they have no starting point. They have no reference point by which to even describe what they've just seen. Ezekiel here had no idea what he just saw. Um, 23 times in these verses that we just read, Ezekiel used the word like or likeness. He sounded like your teenager. <laughs> like it was like it was like totally like like you know like can you just say what you need to say honey well like I went to school and like they were like what this is Ezekiel he turns into a, a guy from Cali you know it's just it was like this it was like that I don't know 15 times here he uses the word appearance he clearly he doesn't know what he's seeing he's doing his best to describe it It's like burnished bronze. It's like coals of fire. It's like flashes of lightning. It's like a sapphire stone. 
And some people read these verses and they get all bent out of shape. They say, that doesn't fit my idea of God at all. What am I supposed to do with this? Well, here's the problem. We struggle with the strangeness of what I've just read because we want a God who is just like we want him to be. We want a God who agrees with all our beliefs and who only does what we imagine God doing. A God like this that I've just read? We have no category for this. This is important. If the true image of God doesn't seem strange to you at times, if the true nature of God doesn't rub you the wrong way now and then, and even offend you occasionally, then chances are you've created a God in your own image, expecting him to be just like you, and then you wonder why he doesn't respond to you the way you want him to. We read this vision about the glory of God, and we have to conclude by saying, this is weird. This is just weird. This is not what I think about when I think about God. You know why? Because God is not like you. God is not like me. And he will never reside within the boundaries that we create for him. You understand what I just said? God will never reside within the boundaries that you and I create for him. He will not be fashioned into whatever we want him to be. One of the things that causes people to walk away from the Christian faith is when they treat God as being simplistic enough that he can be reduced down to their simplistic questions. If A, then B. For instance, people say, if God is good, why is there evil in the world? If God is compassionate, why is there suffering? And they think that these are deep, brilliant questions, that they're the first person in history who's thought of this, that they are the ones who have finally cornered God. And what they don't realize is that those are level one questions. Those are first grade, one-dimensional questions. Hey, can I just ask you, are you sure that if God was loving, there wouldn't be suffering in the world? Are you sure it's reducible to something that simple? Are you sure? Are you sure there aren't other complicating factors involved that you haven't even considered? Are you sure that suffering isn't necessary to work redemptively in our lives to bring growth and maturity about that cannot be achieved by any other means without which the human race would ultimately collapse? Are you sure that you know what you don't know about God? Are you sure? In the late 1950s, early 60s, when the lovable Chairman Mao was ruler over China and the Chinese Communist Party, they wanted to have more food for all the people to eat, a noble desire. And so they decided that the way to accomplish this was to get rid of a certain species of sparrow that was eating their grain and their fruit and basically taking food away from humans that could be eating that grain and that fruit. <clears throat> so they set out on this master plan over the period of a couple of years. They brought about nearly a full extinction <clears throat> of these birds. They were so clever, they got rid of the bird population, and now there was more food for everyone. But they failed to factor in that those birds ate way more locusts than they did grain and fruit. And so now with that bird population completely gone, within a couple of years, they got billions and billions of locusts in China that completely devoured their crops 
to the point where upwards of 45 million people starved to death. What a brilliant plan they came up with. Look at us. We're going to fix this problem. If A, then B. Simple as that. They didn't understand the layers of complexity they were messing with. Listen, all the unsearchable complexity of the glory of God is so far beyond the silly mind of man. We cannot begin to comprehend how complex God is. But God knows that we get overwhelmed and lost in the vastness of his glory. He, he knows this. He remembers that we are dust. And so he lovingly reveals as much as we can handle. And he asks us to trust him with everything else that we don't understand. He asks us to trust in his all-knowing sovereignty. And boy, do people have problems with that. I'll admit, I've had struggles with that in my life too. Just go, God, I, I need an answer on this. I don't know if I can trust you with this. But you know what's beautiful? Beautiful. The older you get, the more you learn to trust. And the more of a joy it is to trust. It comes with time. It comes with walking with someone along the way. The more miles you walk together, the more you know each other. The more you know if you can or cannot trust this person. There are so many areas in life where God asks us to trust in his sovereignty. I don't have time to go into that word. You can pursue it on your own, but it's a very important word. And there's divisions and debates and denominational splits that have happened over that word. I don't, I don't give two cents about any of that. I could care less about people's arguments and fights. The word sovereignty simply means God is in control of everything. Nothing escapes him. <laughs> Nothing surprises him. He is sovereign over his domain, and his domain is the universe. His domain is also your life and mine. 217 times in the book of Ezekiel, we see the term sovereign Lord. 217 times. God refers to himself as the sovereign Lord. 60 times in this book, we see the phrase, the word of the Lord, more than any other book in the Bible. The word holy is used 52 times in this book. It's all pointing the reader to the uniqueness and greatness of God. God didn't give Ezekiel this vision so that he could walk away, you know, focused on how weird it was that those four creatures had hooves for feet. And I think we need to call in some scientists and biologists and, you know, let's try to figure this out. God didn't give Ezekiel this vision so that he could walk away uh, contemplating the size of their wings or what those wheels were made of. If people want to dig into that a little bit and try to understand, they're more than welcome to. But can I just tell you, when people teach from Ezekiel 1, this is all they focus on. They focus on the details of this vision. And what do the hooves mean? And what do their four faces mean? I've heard people say that their four faces represent the four gospels. Give me, give me a break. Come on. Can we not try to force the Bible to say things it doesn't say? Can we just relax? We, we don't have to force things into the scripture. Maybe it does represent the four gospels. I can't see it. I mean, I got to push really, really hard to make that come about. I'm just uncomfortable with that. God didn't give Ezekiel this vision for, for any of these details. This was just Ezekiel going, man, I got to get out my, you know, my pad and write as much of this down as I can, try to explain what I've just seen, even though I don't have a clue. Ezekiel was shown this vision of God's glory so that he would walk away completely overwhelmed by the majesty and power of God. Well, why was that important? Well, that'll become really clear in 
the weeks to come. But as we wind this down now, what, what was Ezekiel's reaction? Well, we saw it at the very end there, Ezekiel 1, verse 28b. He said, so when I saw it, I fell on my face. You know, John said the same thing in Revelation. He got a glimpse of the throne. He wasn't standing there smacking his chewing gum going, hey, God, what's up? He said, I fell on my face like a dead man. Where's that reverence today? Where's that reverence of God? Where's that fear of God? We talked about this yesterday in the men's prayer time. What a great time. The fear of God. And if we jump ahead to chapter 3, verse 15, when all this revelation was over with Ezekiel, he said, I went and sat down with the other captives, and he said, and I remained there astonished among them for seven days. He was left silent and overwhelmed for a week. You know what I think? I think we as Americans talk too much. I think I talk too much. And I'm a quiet guy. If you only see me up here, you have no idea. Sandy has to get a crowbar and pry words out of me. Because I've, I've like used up my daily allotment by 1030. <laughs> I can go months without talking to anybody. Because I'm one of those people. Give me a stack of books and a cabin in the mountains. I'll be fine for 10 years. But still, I think I talk too much. I struggle with being up here every Sunday. I've told the guys, hey, it's too much fill. We, somebody else needs to get up here. <clears throat> Everything in our society today is about communication, right? Fast communication, instant communications around the world, and yet we're disconnected more than any generation has ever been. We're communicating, but we ain't talking. And, and, and this strikes me here, this verse in Ezekiel 3. I remained there astonished among them for seven days. Do we ever reach times in our walk with God, in our understanding of him, that it just so completely overwhelms us that we have nothing to say? You know what? The older I get, the less I have to say about things. It's true. Because the older I get and the more I study the Bible, the more I realize I don't know much of anything. Ezekiel was overwhelmed by what he saw, and he spent a week just going, I got nothing. I just want to be here in the residue of what I've just seen, and I want to think about God. And I close with this. I mentioned a moment ago why. Why did Ezekiel need to undergo such a radical shift in his understanding, in his mental picture of God? Because make no mistake, Ezekiel, like everybody else and like all of us, had a picture of God in his mind. Well, he needed to undergo this change because, as we'll see, the task that God was about to call him to was going to be so difficult and so challenging and so costly that in order for him to make it through, he would need a picture of God that was bigger and more powerful and more sovereign than anything he had ever had before. His picture of God needed to change if it was going to sustain him through what he was about to go through. And folks, this is a reminder for me. You and I have never arrived in our study and our understanding of God. I don't care how many religious schools you've graduated from, and how many degrees you have about the Bible. All wonderful. Congratulations. But none of us must ever get to the place where we stop pursuing God and, and, and say, yeah, I don't need a fresh vision of God. I don't need a deeper understanding of him. I'm good. No, we're not good. Because I promise you, somewhere down the road of your life, tomorrow, next week, next year, 
You are going to need a bigger, more powerful, more sovereign understanding of God than you have today if you're going to make it through what's coming up. Because your picture of God today will not sustain you down the road. So God graciously gives this to Ezekiel to prepare him for what's about to happen. And it is rough. It is rough. Ezekiel endured more horrible things than any other prophet. And God had to get him ready. God had to show him, hey, Ezekiel, this God who is calling you to this is not some nut job who's just thinking up crazy things for for you to do. This God who is calling you to these crazy, difficult, costly things is the same God who is powerful enough, all-knowing enough, sovereign enough to sustain you through what I'm about to call you to. Maybe, maybe God has been stretching you lately, or maybe he needs to. Maybe he needs to stretch your picture of who you always thought he was. Because you've become comfortable. You've created a cozy little tame God. Maybe you'd have to admit you've replaced the real image of God in your mind with one that you fashioned exactly how you want him to be. He's a God you can control. He never challenges you. He never corrects you. He never convicts you because you don't like that. You're one of the 92% who say, oh, I believe in God. Can I just tell you, folks, God is way more than an answer on a survey. Who is he to you? This initial glimpse we've seen of God here makes no sense to me. Frankly, I wish it wasn't in the Bible. I'd be a little more comfortable if I could explain God in my own terms. God comes along and says, here, take a peek at this, and it's going to blow your mind. You will not be able to put words to this because this is who I am. And yet, listen, what we're going to see in this book, as I said, 63 times God says, I want them to know that I am the Lord. I want them to know me. Maybe you need to ask God to give you a reminder of who he really is. He's not your buddy. He's not your pal. He's the all-powerful, sovereign God. Do you see him as that this morning? Maybe as we close and we sing a couple songs, maybe you just need to get with God and say, Lord, I've reduced you to something that you are not. I've made you a neat little, kind, fun American God who's like a spare tire in my trunk. When I get in trouble, I run and pull you out, and we're buddies again, and you see me through the rough patches. Maybe today, young person, old person, maybe you need to just humbly come before him today and say, God, forgive me. I've turned you into something in my mind that you are not. You're way bigger than anything I can comprehend. And I thank you for revealing parts of yourself to me that I can understand. And I thank you, God, that there are parts of you that are bigger than me and I will never comprehend. That's the kind of God I want. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a, uh, what a strange chapter in the Bible this is, and yet the, the more I think about it, the more beautiful it becomes. I, I don't need a God I can fully define. If God is God, he has to be beyond description. For him to be God, he must be. He must be bigger than all our understanding. He, he must be more powerful and more terrifying than anything we can imagine. And yet, Lord, as we'll see in this book, that same God, the same God who is so 
huge, who was so powerful, who was so fierce that the Bible says his eyes are like flames of fire and heaven and earth flee from his presence. That same fearsome God who is not to be trifled with is the same God who pursues sinful man tirelessly. He sent Ezekiel to pursue his wayward people all the way up into Babylon to remind them he hadn't forgotten about them, to call them back to himself so that they would know that he was the Lord and that they could be his people and he could be their God. Lord, we are just amazed by this. I pray first, Lord, if there's anyone here, anyone watching online who has never come to you in the first place, they've never surrendered their heart and their life to you, I pray right now, God, they would call out to you by faith and believe in the gift of salvation and eternal life that your son came to give. And they would repent and turn their life over to you. And Lord, for all of those who have done that, maybe they see themselves this morning, if they're honest, in a place of just uh, just complacency. They don't think about God in these terms at all. God, for each of us, however we need it this morning, would you give us a fresh glimpse of you? I pray even to the point that you would leave us in awe for a week, that we could do nothing but sit and reflect upon you and your greatness. Lord, I pray that all of us would know that you are the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time... May God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart. of my heart.